The mask that I wore was someone who's allegedly a good role model, yet behind the scenes is like, you know, obsessively counting every morsel of food I'm consuming. Like, yeah, these things, these things didn't match. You know, I, I cared about this concept of integrity. I wanted to be someone who was the same person in public as they are in private. And it just felt like, you know, this is, this is not okay. Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. My guest today is Allison Stoner. Allison is an actress, dancer, and entrepreneur who got her start in Hollywood at just seven years old. Allison skyrocketed to fame after she starred in Missy Elliott's Work It video in 2002, and she subsequently landed roles in movies like Cheaper by the Dozen and Step Up, as well as Disney Channel's The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody and Camp Rock. But the intensity of the entertainment world that Allison was growing up in would soon take a toll. At 17, she finally admitted herself to rehab after suffering from an eating disorder, and since that time has been on a journey to heal herself from some of the psychological wounds that growing up in Hollywood has had on her. My full conversation with Allison Stoner right after this quick break. Allison Stoner, thank you so much for joining Imposters. Thank you for having me. We're uh, we're going to go way back to start. Tell me about the beginning of your career in entertainment, and I believe it was at six years old when you were introduced to the industry. What was the impetus for you getting involved so young? You really are going all the way back to the beginning. So actually, three years prior, at three years old, is when I started performing. But I, this is actually a loaded question. Uh, I'm going to give you two very different answers that were playing out simultaneously. It's just kind of a matter of vantage point. So track with me. Um, so first, I'm told that I was a young, precocious child who enjoyed dance class. And when an opportunity arose to attend a modeling school and then thereafter an acting convention, my mother and stepfather were supportive of, you know, seemingly burgeoning interests and skill sets. And then after positive outcomes of winning some of the competitions and receiving callbacks, um, we were strongly encouraged to meet and sign with agents in Hollywood in order to pursue the entertainment industry more formally. Now, having zero background in the industry, it was all new territory. And early on, I booked a few gigs, which drove our family to the decision-making point sooner than later regarding, do we relocate our family? Am I switching now from public school to homeschool, you know, et cetera. So from that vantage point, it's a story of a young kid with creative and professional potential and the fortunate means to support this passion turned career. Now, (laughs) story number two, which is a little thicker. I am three to six years old. 
performing and training first recreationally and then competitively as many funnels flow. Developmentally, my identity and my personality are largely subsumed into my caregivers, meaning I don't have an individual sense of self yet, right? And I'm making decisions based on what's modeled for me, yes, but also whatever decisions like, you know, following a teacher's rules help me remain worthy of love, attention, and belonging, because that's my ticket for survival at four years old. Further, when asked if I want to keep performing or, you know, when applauded after a great show, I don't have the cognitive apparatus to understand the implications of turning this hobby into a career, right? Like I can't fathom how it'll it'll affect my attachment style to be uprooted from my hometown. I can't estimate the alienation and safety precautions of being socialized as a famous commercial kid product uh, with fans approaching me on the sidewalk, you know, versus just being a kid in your neighborhood or class. You mean you weren't thinking about codependency as a four-year-old? Yeah, right. <laughs> and like, I don't know how this is affecting my nervous system or stunting my emotional and physical development to have an adult work schedule and to be in that pressurized, performance-driven environment. So from this vantage point, to me, and, you know, please weigh in on this, to me, there's a glaring consideration of the parent's role in making these decisions, um, even with the the purest of intention. And then there's also some cultural considerations, like our enchantment with entertainment and success and notoriety, and how that creates room for an entire system of child laborers to exist in plain sight and be celebrated while internally experiencing immense psychological, social, physical disruptions that often later lead to mental distress, addiction, abuse, and sometimes suicide. That is my entry point for this conversation. <laughs> yeah, well, um, unfortunately, the entry point for this conversation sounds quite reminiscent of a conversation I had a few months ago on this very podcast with Josh Peck. Oh, yeah. Um, who has had a journey that unfortunately, to kind of the point you allude to, a lot of people who get into the industry very young have had to experience. I want to talk about this this trend that you've written an op-ed around. Even the other day, I saw you had tweeted out about basically this journey that child actors and actresses make throughout their life and the difficulty of it and how it hasn't been you know, scientifically studied yet, but there's there's so much there if someone was to do the 100%. work to, to mm -hmm. see it. But tell me for a second, what was your parents' perspective around all this? Like when the decision was being made to ultimately give you a shot at fame and taking a, a personal passion and taking a professional, what was their viewpoint? So from my understanding, because there's the, the story I inherited about my upbringing, and then there's the reflections that come 20 years later, I understood my mother to be fully supportive of whatever interests I had forming. My sisters were in sports. I happened to be in this acting school. And 
She said if I wanted to become a pilot, she would hope that she could support me in, you know, taking aviation lessons. So it wasn't viewed as a career. However, and this is what I notice happening day in and day out with families trying it in Hollywood, there is no preparation for the kind of processes you're about to go through. And it's a lot of chaotic, last-minute sacrifices that put stress on the family to decide which kids' event they're going to attend tonight. And acting, singing, dancing, not just in local community theater, but once it's commercialized in an industry, you're now in like a corporate setting with expectations that are far beyond you know, are you going to do your competitive dance convention this weekend? So I don't think my parents were prepared or aware of what was about to ensue. And I know that my mother did so many things to protect me uh, in terms of like auditions, for example. She would you know, say, hey, you're not going out for anything where you have to cuss. You're not doing things that are violent. You're not doing X, Y, Z. We've got some boundaries. We're a Midwest family. We got some morals. And, you know, if you want to quit, let's have a conversation. Like there's no pressure and certainly no expectations that you're going to be famous. So from that angle, it was like a pretty wholesome, you know, happy-go-lucky, exciting opportunity. Um, but there's just way too much happening at the subconscious levels in all of us that, uh, I just, I gotta believe that there's probably something more and it's not necessarily for me to air that out, uh, on a microphone, um, <laughs> you know, but if, if my mother wanted to talk about it at some point, I would be equally curious to hear what was going through her mind. <laughs> out of curiosity, um, as we're about to kind of unfold your journey, have you had these conversations with your mom? I have had a few. She has seen the challenges I've faced. Um, mind you, you know, Josh and, and many of my peers, they had experiences that included substances, uh, that included addiction. Um, some have experienced abusive relationships and or being an abuser. And um, my vices were much more socially acceptable, which allowed me to hide them in plain sight. I chose things like overachievement and things like, I just want to be ultra healthy. So I'm going to work out all the time and count every calorie, right? Which eventually led to an eating disorder. But so I... Uh, you couldn't really tell the impact it was having on me because I was still hitting my mark. Um, so I think it's hard for my mom to understand sometimes, like, you seem to be doing just fine when in reality I know in my therapy sessions when I'm unable to access emotion because I've had walls built up from childhood to help protect from the amount of attention I was absorbing all the time from every direction. Like, yeah, mom, like, I I hope one day you can understand this a little bit more fully. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've tr I try, but she's on her own journey and process as well. Allison is careful not to place blame for her early childhood traumas on her parents or on anyone in particular. Rather, she's been very open about the fact that she sees her experience as being part of a larger systemic issue. 
Last year, Allison published an op-ed titled The Toddler to Trainwreck Industrial Complex, in which she talks about the impact that being a child entertainer has on short and long-term development brain chemistry, and nervous system regulation. She says that the high-pressured environments that surround child entertainers are a major part of this problem, and that the first step to alleviating some of these issues is to have trained mental health professionals on every single set. I think you've done an exceptional job painting a picture at kind of the macro level of what's happening um, in entertainment to children within entertainment. And also the feeling I get is, at least societally, I speculate maybe one reason that there isn't the sense of urgency to change things is maybe this perception that actors and actresses are famous. They they choose to be famous. They have all of the benefits of fame. Right, right. Is this really a big problem? And I think to, to your point, there's a number of things to, to at least ask the question of there, which is, does everyone have this choice? Is everyone fully aware of the trade-offs? Just because people have certain benefits in an industry doesn't mean there aren't also great trade-offs and consequences of that. I would love to get a little bit more micro for a second and understand within your own experience, how did these early experiences impact you mentally, spiritually, your ability to regulate your emotions? And I believe in your op-ed, there there was a story you told about an audition that involves uh, a scene of assault and rape. Can you talk a little bit about the the impact that experience had on you? Sure. Um, if you are lucky enough to get an agent, lucky enough to be submitted for roles out of 100,000 performers, lucky enough to get an audition out of the 10,000 submitted lucky enough to have an acting coach help you prepare, enough flexibility in your school or job that you can call in last minute. Still, the audition process is is a complex set of overlapping experiences. So, uh, you know, I want to give you a couple factors just to, to situate ourselves in the context of an audition. So one, you're entering a, a random room with a stranger and you are creating a fantasy world on the spot. And that requires you to deeply manipulate your psychological and emotional state of being on cue. So there's that set of stuff. Two, you're given scripts and roles with clear descriptions of a character's attributes. And based on what you're submitted for, you'll start to see patterns emerge in the way that your agents and the industry and the world perceives you. Perhaps you only ever go out for the funny sidekick or the beautiful vixen or the ugly relative. These archetypes and stereotypes inevitably shape your sense of artistry, your career path, and also your own self-concept. So there's that batch of things. Next, there's... um. There's a, a stat that says it's approximately 200 times uh, auditioning before you'll book a job. So just imagine the time, energy, money, emotional labor of putting yourself out there 200 times, getting 200 no's all across town. And if you haven't been released from your agent by then, getting one yes that'll only pay a couple hundred bucks. It'll only last a couple days before you're unemployed again. Okay, so like this chaotic schedule and and roller coaster of emotions, as well as this art of learning to people please in auditions to win the job, um, the impact of constant rejection, all of that's happening around the clock. And yes, that took a toll on how I navigate social interactions and relationships. Um, but for the the mature and explicit scenes I had to portray, I do want to double down that my mother did a great job at 
not agreeing to ever have me audition for something so awful. However, what happens, as is with most films, there's usually something in there that's an intense scene, whether the kid is supposed to be there or not. And it could be grief, it could be uh, abuse, it could be violence, it could be illness. And so in the audition room, sometimes the casting people will want you to experiment and improvise. So now the parent doesn't even know that their kid is enacting certain emotional states or accessing these places psychologically, right? And reminding you, this kid cannot differentiate from reality from fantasy, right? So this is in their body memory, like it's a real event. So, you know, flash forward, how has this affected me in some specific ways? One thing is this parasocial relationship landscape that I navigate as my norm. There are millions of people who know a lot about me and who feel connected to me, but I've never met them. And it's a, it's a more of a one-sided relationship. That is something worth Googling because we all do it, whether it's a, a character in a, a, you know, a film we love or it's an actual celebrity or public figure. Second is this mask, right? I've, I have had a persona from childhood um, and I have worn a mask and I've kept it on at all times. And this mask is both protective, it's a protective shield for me, as well as the persona that helps me continue to book jobs and build a career. Um, and then, you know, there's concepts like career momentum and the pressure to stay relevant and what happens in puberty when you start getting roles that are sexualizing the character and blah, blah, blah. But these are just some of the ways that it it could affect young performers and, and did affect me. Another impact that the intensity of the entertainment business had on Allison was a desire for control in her life. And as she alluded to earlier in the interview, this eventually manifested in the form of an eating disorder. Uh, so... Around 13, I, I was noticing I had some some eating disorder behaviors. Um, my best guess is that, you know, it was a way to bring some routine to my life in the midst of the, the chaos. And at first, you know, I was just, I wanted to be selective about food and, and dedicated to a workout. And then it, it took over my life. Um, I tried getting help and recovering uh, on my own, but it was really, it got way too big to face alone. And so after a while... Um, I had an audition for the Hunger Games. And uh, typically, you know, by then I knew, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Like, don't be obsessive. Have a balanced approach. Do your best and then let it go. But the Hunger Games, man, that was such a special project. Um, and I really wanted to do my best. Well, in training for it, even just the audition, I became really underweight. And it reached the point where all of the mechanisms I put in place to help me if things were starting to go too far just did not work. So I um, I removed myself and said, yeah, I really need to get into treatment. So you By had this then, awareness. I, you had the awareness that you were not in a good place. Oh, for sure. Because I wanted to be... The mask that I wore was someone who's allegedly a good role model, yet behind the scenes is like you know, obsessively counting every morsel of food I'm consuming. Like, th yeah, these things, these things didn't match. You know, I, I cared about this concept of integrity. I wanted to be someone who was the same person in public as they are in private. And it just felt like 
you know, this is this is not okay. I mean, of course, and also the scale showed me it's not okay. My, you know, heart rate was like the heart palpitations, the sallow skin, the hair loss, and everything that comes with it. We're going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, we'll get into how Allison has learned to heal emotionally and trust others and the new way in which she is approaching her career. Stay with us. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. And we're back. Before the break, Allison described the grueling nature of the entertainment industry and the psychological impacts it had on her and her development. But after hitting the low point of putting herself into rehab, I was curious to know what the process of healing mentally and emotionally looked like for her. One thing that you've mentioned as a function of these masks, as a function of having fame early, is a fear of building authentic relationships. Um, yeah, because of this feeling that you have to maintain a certain image that became your identity. Yeah, tell me about how this fear shaped your behavior and also the things that you did in your life to try to deconstruct and then reconstruct yourself so you could actually form authentic relationships. This is uh, <laughs> this is such a, a tender and obviously intimate area uh, to speak about. What I noticed growing up, even when I tried to start dating, something my peers and I speak about is that we don't have the chance to make a first impression. If someone's familiar with our work, they already have an idea in their mind of who we are. And so we can't really start from square one. Um, Many of us on purpose then date people who are like, a lot older because they didn't see our work or we date people who don't have a TV. I'm a big fan of going that route. And I think when it comes to authenticity, there it's very difficult to build trust when the people around you are either on your payroll or they're benefiting from your success and maybe even enabling some of the unhealthy behavior. And so... I I really struggled to ever be willing to rely on someone else to help me in my emotional needs in the deepest, most vulnerable spaces. Um, To this day, uh, you know, my, my partner is wonderful and patient. And because of the container we've built together, I'm now finally learning to lean on my partner in moments and to let myself be held in moments, to not be hyper self-sufficient or to be quick to, you know, kind of have the martyr complex where you abandon your own needs because someone else said they need something and I never learned that having my own needs was okay. So it's, it's taken 
a you know a drastic toll. Um, but uh, each of us in our life paths have our first map of reality, and then you have you know the option of whether or not to stick with that. If that's something that's working for you, then kudos. But for those of us who are like something's not right, I need to go back rewrite my perception of my past and also write a new future because I don't want next year to be what this year or the past was like. Yeah, we got to do some deconstruction. And for me, that looks like a lot of therapy, a lot of books, a lot of a lot of moments alone um and learning how to listen to my mind and body, but also create distance from the story that's driving me every day so I can start to play with new ideas and have the capacity to to withstand the necessary discomfort of transformation. As you reflect on your journey thus far, what do you think are the most important decisions you made or resources you consumed that had the, the, the biggest, let's call it like stepwise shifts in your ability to know who you truly are, your ability to have compassion and love for yourself, and also your ability to not have this martyr complex where you can actually take care of yourself and not feel like you have to do things for others at the detriment of your own happiness and well-being. Ooh, yes. Some of these moments and decisions were, one, choosing rehab. That was more than just naming for the first time that my health and well-being are important. It was also recognizing that sometimes the people around me are not necessarily going to be in agreement with the decision that focuses on health maybe loses career momentum. So that was a moment of reclaiming some power and agency over my own body um, and what happens mentally and physically and emotionally. And just for the listener before we go to the next one, when was that specifically just in your chronology? Yep, I was about 17 years old. And was that and was that right after the Hunger Games auditions? Yeah, it had to be soon after. Uh, yes, actually, because <laughs> while I was in rehab, this shows you, this shows you where people's priorities are. I was on bed rest and my management still sent me an audition for another role in Hunger Games. They said, okay, so you didn't get this one, but do you want to go out for this character? I'm like, I am hooked up to a machine right now. And they said, yeah, but you'll be out by the time they're filming. Y'all are missing the point here. So that was a, a moment to to be in a bit of a cocoon, which I hadn't uh, had the chance to do. Um, some some changes that happened in treatment. I had always longed for the bravery to leave entertainment and to venture out and see what existed beyond entertainment. But the the fear of not having any other skill and also the admiration of like, wait, you quote unquote made it. So wh why do you want to leave it now? Really, you know, kept me in, in my pattern. So coming out of treatment, I had a little bit more willingness to believe that there could be a second story for me. And ironically, even though I was nervous about going back to audition and getting back into things, the first audition I went on, I booked. And it was my first ever series regular role on an ABC show. 
with a star-studded cast. This is something I longed for for 20 years. And you know how I felt when I booked it? I had absolute dread. Because I was like, I'm not ready to go from zero to 100 again. I don't know if I, I really want this. So having that, and thankfully the show didn't get picked up. Oof, just like the 10 other shows that didn't get picked up. So that was working on my psyche and my heart. Um, the next moment was when social media era began. And I realized, oh, I can actually create my own content and share things directly with an audience. So I'll have a little bit more control over my life and schedule, maybe some alternative ways to have financial stability. So that was empowering. There came a time when I was juggling both. I had a a music video that was releasing one day and then, you know, was making content to promote it. And a friend reached out and said, there's this trip and it's with a bunch of entrepreneurs and social impact folks. And I really think, you know, you might resonate with this. That activated all the parts of me that were dormant, but that were eager to surface. And so in the middle of my release, I did something I would never have done. I left and went on a trip. And that trip changed my life because it showed me there are people outside of entertainment doing cool things for a purpose. And I was like, wow, I feel awake. I feel, I feel like I can contribute. Like, let me get more involved. Thereafter, you know, the next or, or amidst that, one of the other milestones was coming to terms with my own sexuality. And that just invited a deconstruction of my family of origin, a deconstruction of faith, a deconstruction of all kinds of systems that were in place. And each of these things were liberating me more and more and more so that I could start to generate creative, um, you know, ideas for a different future. And part of this different future was starting her company, Movement Genius, with her sister two years ago. And this, Allison says, is what she feels is her life's work. And while Allison's clarity of self seems so assured and put together now, she's quick to put down that myth. Allison is open about the fact that she's still very much hard at work on herself and that it wasn't a simple path to get to where she is today. I would like for all of you to know that I have had dishes in my sink for <laughs> at least a week now. Um, and uh, and I, I do want to share a bit of, you know, the quote unquote dark night of the soul. And I've, I've had several. And um, one of them, truly, I felt so confused for a whole season, a whole chapter of life. I, I had, you know, fits in bed of just crying and and no idea where it was coming from, if it was something from the past coming up or if it was the pressures of today. Even the concept of transitioning from childhood to adulthood was like basic adulting functions seemed like the hardest things in the world for me to do, to brush my teeth every single day. Like I could hardly keep anything in order. So, and I still, every day, like I just yesterday had to lead a workshop and we're offering tools to support people. Well, this morning, like 
I myself was like, wow, I really need to use some of those tools because I'm struggling. So yes, there's clarity because this is a part of the job that I know best is how to articulate this experience. But I am a full uh, human with the full spectrum of it all. and, And I'm learning every single day. And I am also painfully normal in the challenges that I'm I'm facing. Like brushing my teeth sometimes is much harder than doing this interview. And doing your dishes as well. And doing dishes. And just so you know, I have now worn this sweatshirt three days in a row. So that, that's what we like, call efficiency. <laughs> I love the reframe. Exactly. Um first of all, thank you for sharing that. I want to talk about uh, Movement Genius. Tell me mm. the impetus for starting this company and mm. also tell me what it has been like becoming a founder. What are the things that have come naturally to you and what are tools that you've had to add to the toolkit you didn't have before? Um, so given my own health journey and transformation, Many years ago, I started researching uh, the fields of psychology, neurophysiology, etc. And the tools that had been most transformative uh, for my nervous system as well as my mindset were tools that combined the mind and body simultaneously. So it was both a cognitive and somatic approach. Um, some folks have heard the term top down, which is when you use tools focused mostly on your thoughts to help your body feel better. And then there's also bottom up approaches where you're helping your body and nervous system relax in order to improve your mental health. Well, I got a few certifications in this space, and I started collaborating with therapists and and experts to bring these tools to more people um, since they're often inaccessible, they're quite expensive, and still a lot of us separate mental health and physical health and forget the importance of that mind-body connection for this deep transformation. So at the start of the pandemic, I led, you know, we were all inside. I led a 14-day series of live classes on Instagram using these tools and these concepts. And over 150,000 people showed up. And it showed me that we all badly needed support. And from there, Movement Genius was born. I have one final question for you. Um, Yes. If you could wave a magic wand, would you change your childhood? Ooh, uh, oh man. (laughs) Because I don't believe in regret necessarily, but I believe if you had something within your power, having a perspective on something is reasonable as well. Uh, I appreciate that. And just so you know, after this conversation, one of these days, I'm going to put you in the hot seat and I will be asking you all of the questions of your experience as a founder and a human. Happy to talk about all of it. Um, Yeah. And uh, so to answer your final question for now, because I know that I wouldn't wish this life on any other young person, I have confidence saying I would wave a magic wand and change some of those experiences, mostly just to be more holistic so that my development didn't 
focus primarily on only one to two interests and skills, but I just felt a little more equipped to navigate the fullness of life. But now that we're here, we all we all have gaps in our development, um, losses, benefits, privileges, and it's you know now it's like what do we do with these pieces? What puzzle do we want to um, to make? And uh, and that's when I play a game called Keep, Toss, and Transform. And I look at an aspect of my life or a belief or maybe even a material object in your house, and you say, is this contributing to a journey of wholeness? Um, is it contributing to well-being? Is it contributing to the way I want to serve the world? If so, keep it. If not, and it's like completely irredeemable, get rid of it. If you need to, transform it and help it become more effective. Um, so that's, you know, that's been my journey. Look at the pieces, see what you need to keep, toss, and transform, and keep going. What a, what a great tool to leave listeners with. Alison Stoner, thank you so much for joining Imposters. Thank you. I'm impressed with Alison's ability to look back on her time as a child actor with a thoughtful perspective rather than a bitter one. Here is someone who grew up in the weird and intense environment of the entertainment industry, and rather than letting it inform the way she leads her life, she has found her way to a more grounded, healthy mindset, as well as career, by following her instincts and paying attention to what actually helps her feel whole. So as we head into the new year, I think it's a perfect time to implement Allison's keep, toss, and transform practice. What have you done this year that has contributed to your sense of well-being and what you want to be contributing to the world? And what have you been doing that does not push you towards where you want to be, that you want to get rid of? Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our producer is Michaela Heck. Greg Jacobs is our video producer. And A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler. <laughs>